Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes that open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. And now with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, I literally, within the last hour, uh, got home after visiting Dubai. United Arab Emirates for the last few days. So I thought I'd start a little bit talking about there, my experiences, uh, what uh, the feeling is on the ground uh, towards Israel. Uh, the first thing I should say is that uh, for my discussions before about whether to openly identify as Israeli, to wear my kippah, as you can say, I wear kippah, people said to me, it's fine. And I have to say, I wore my kippah everywhere. Anyone who asked me if I was Israeli, I only received very positive uh, feedback. Walking in the souk, in the markets, people came up to me and said, Shalom, and said, really, we welcome you and your people to our country. Please feel like it's your country. Please tell all your friends to come. I have to say, really, really warm welcome wherever we went. And that's part of the reason, at least. There's at least four or five planes every single day taking hundreds, if not thousands of Israelis uh, to Dubai and back. There is talk of it becoming a red country for Israel next week, where uh, if so, then when you return to Israel, you have to quarantine for two weeks. At the moment, it's a green country, so no quarantine. Hence, uh, I'm here. Um, but I have to say, the people are very welcoming. They really do seem to believe very much in what's going on, the Abraham Accords, peace, etc. I had a few meetings with some senior officials um, the level of warmth is possibly even higher at that level. Um, there isn't a day that goes by these days without some sort of event, whether <clears throat> virtually or uh, in real time, uh, having events, uh, discussing cooperation, discussing relationships. I myself spoke at an event today about uh, creating alliances between Jews and Arabs, uh, between UAE and Israel. And it was attended by some very high official, uh, very high level officials, religious leaders. And it was really a love fest. You know, it was, I, I can't really say any more about it. Uh, this, this, it's not just a sense of ease, it's a sense of warmth. Uh, you know, I, sometimes you're sort of pinching yourself and I'm thinking to myself, I'm walking in the streets of Dubai with the kippah, openly Israeli. Six months ago, we didn't have any relationships. If I would have traveled there, I'd have traveled on a foreign passport, would have kept my identity very much to myself. But here we are, it's, 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 a, it's a game changer for the region. And, and I think it can only grow from here because as I said, every single day, there's signings on scientific uh, partnerships and cultural relationships, uh, political relationships, trade, uh, travel, tourism, as I said, Israelis are clambering to get out to Dubai, every airline possible. And this is before even the big airlines, Etihad, Emirates, and even El Al have entered the market at the moment. It's only the low cost airlines who are in the market, but the Israelis, there's a great thirst uh, to get across there. And almost everywhere we went, you could just hear Hebrew. Um, you could see Israelis. 
And we know that not to the same level, but there's a certain amount of Emiratis who are coming across to Israel. The news this week was that um, the biggest uh, soccer football team in, in Jerusalem, Beitar Yerushalayim, uh, which has a bit of a history, some supporters have anti-Arab prejudices, uh, was just bought 50% by a member of the uh, uh, Emirati royal family. So we can see that there really is, you know, sort of no boundaries to what's going on uh, between Israel and the UAE. Whether that lasts, whether it will, uh, you know, whether anything can stop this at this point uh, remains to be seen. But at the moment, I think really both sides are grabbing it uh, uh, with, with everything they have. And I think it can only grow from here. Moving on, a uh, lot of shocks this week in the political world. The biggest one is Gidon Saar, uh, a long-term Likud member, uh, someone who's always seen as probably the biggest opponent to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Likud uh, party, and it was the last serious challenger, and probably the only serious challenger, to Netanyahu in many, many years. Although the last time he did challenge him about a year ago, he only received, I think it was something like 23% of the vote, and Netanyahu won the rest of the vote. Um, so it wasn't the most serious challenge, but certainly, you know, he had around a quarter of uh, Likud people supporting. But what we see now is that uh, Gidon Saar um, has basically decided to leave the Likud and set up a new party called Tikva uh, Chadashah, the New Hope. Um, it's clear that um, some of his very strong allies, like Michal Shir, Sharon Chaskel, uh, and possibly others, uh, will be leaving, but these are not big names. The one person they were looking out for is Yoav uh, Kish, who was the biggest cheerleader for Gidon Saar during those primaries, but Yoav uh, Kish today is the Deputy Health Minister. He's someone who's relatively towing the line as far as the Prime Minister, and he doesn't seem like he will jump uh, to the new party. What has happened is uh, Dara Heritz um, of Joris Hentor and uh, Srika Hauser, we've talked about them in the past. They're people who are very well thought of in the political levels. They don't seem to gain too much support, uh, according to polls, on their own. And they have for a long time been looking around, sniffing around, seeing which party uh, or constellation that they can join. Uh, they've seemed like they're going to be joining uh, Gidon Saar's party and them with perhaps uh, others like Shasha Biton. Uh, who we know was the head of the Coronavirus Committee and received a lot of plaudits for stopping some of the, what uh, much of the uh, general public saw as irrational uh, rulings on uh, the restrictions to do with the corona. So she, she received quite a lot of um, support for that. So if, if they can pick up, if Gidon Saar can pick up some of these figures, then he'll certainly do well. The early polls have shown that Gidon Saar can get as much as 17. Now, with these kind of things, I always take it as a pinch of salt for many reasons. First of all, as soon as you have a new party, there's always a new party bounce. We saw last elections or one before that, Oli Levy, I think, when she decided to strike out alone and join and create a party, Gesha, her first results were 12, 11 seats, and then she didn't pass the uh, threshold. Um, so I wouldn't put too much in that. Uh, slowly but surely, those numbers will probably come down. Um, also, polls in Israel are notoriously about making headlines rather than the reality. Sometimes, and I know posters in Israel who have asked, what, what results would you like to see before 
uh, actually publishing results. And at the end of the day, when they have results once, twice, times a week, the idea is to give the media headlines to make something different. If it's the same old numbers every single time, then it's not of interest. So they have to have headlines. But it's clear that there is a, 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 a group of Israelis on the center right, center, perhaps even center left, who are tired, who, are, who do not like uh, Netanyahu, who don't think Gantz or Lapis have anything new to offer. And they seem to be attracted to Gidon Saar and some of the other faces uh, that protect, uh, potentially uh, are bringing him. What is interesting is that he doesn't seem to be taking so much from the Likud. There are a few uh, votes he's taken from the Likud. He seems to be taking more from Blue and White. He's uh, taken quite a few from Yashatid and Yamina. What is interesting is if you put them, all the right-wing religious parties together, we're actually getting closer to the 70s. Uh, usually the right-wing bloc is between 61 and 66, 67, depending on the poll. Uh, but if you add to in, factor in uh, Gidon Saar, then it could be late 70s, if not longer. The question is, and this is uh, what uh, will certainly be uh, on Prime Minister Netanyahu's mind is, can he bring in Gidon Saar after elections? Can he bring in Naftali Bennett? It's clear that without either of them, he won't be able to form a future government. What the number that I always look out for, which I think is certainly worth noting, is if you look at the most recent poll and you take out uh, Netanyahu's Likud, you take out the Haredi parties, you take out the Arabs and Merits, is there a block of 61, which would include Gidon Saar's new party, Yamina, Yashatid, Blue and White and Yisrael Beteinu. And according to the recent polls, you certainly do have uh, 61. So it's possible to have a centre-left, centre-right uh, centre and right-wing uh, alternative to the current government after elections. Uh, perhaps they could work together on a lot of issues uh, because perhaps on the diplomatic and security issues, there are certain differences, not major differences, but on certain differences, but on many other issues, um, there isn't that much uh, difference. And there are, there are a lot of characters there that certainly work together. Uh, you, you look in the past at Lapid and Bet, who are ideologically relatively apart, but they've worked very, very well together. They have very good relationships. The same with uh, Avito Lehman and Yair Lapid, and even Avito Lehman and uh, Bennett. Gidon Saar is relatively liked by all of them. Uh, Hauser and Hendo can be that bridge. Uh, so that, it can't be ruled out. The question is who would be the leader of that uh, particular constellation. Um, but it's certainly something that uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu will be looking at. The other wild card is Gadi Eisenkot, a previous chief of staff who's talked about entering politics, perhaps with the Tel Aviv mayor, Ron Khodai, and some others, Zippy Livni. I think we talked about that last week. Um, nothing's been confirmed on that yet. It could be that Eisenkot, who hasn't ruled it out, could even go with Saar to create a mega party. Now that would be a real threat uh, um, to become potentially even the largest party. Even talk about Saar's party coming in with Bennett's party, perhaps Smotrich on the side, uh, who's the right wing, uh, the, the more far right uh, wing of Yamina. There's all sorts to talk about over the next few weeks. If we go to elections, I still say that we almost certainly will go to elections. Again, uh, as we've talked about recently, there are two clocks. One is uh, passing the uh, dispersal of Knesset law, which uh, 
I, I believe the first reading is coming on the 16th. And then if, if the dispersal of Knesset uh, uh, law hasn't passed the 23rd without a budget, it all ends. Uh, regardless of anything else, three months from that point, we have elections. Now, if there is a dispersal of Knesset, as we've spoken of before, you have quite a wide margin of when to actually have the elections. Obviously, those like um, Bennett, now Saar, and some others want to have it as soon as possible to, uh, to keep up their momentum. Netanyahu would want to have it as far as possible, because even though today Israel received its first batch of vaccines, and they say uh, by the 26th, uh, 26th of December, there's going to be, I believe, 60,000 uh, vaccines given out every single day. So obviously the situation is going to be changing quite rapidly on that front, but probably the later as possible will mean uh, the situation will have changed dramatically. So these are all things to look out for, uh, but it's, it's been another hectic week and I'm sure by next week, there'll be other surprises. Who's going to move with who? Everyone is jockeying for position. Could this change the game? Could this change uh, Netanyahu's calculations for calling elections? Could he, you know, if, if elections are now uh, averted, that will certainly make Saar's position very difficult because then he would be out of uh, power because he resigned from the Knesset today for a certain amount of time um, and he would have lost his momentum. So there's a lot for all the major players to be thinking about because um, we now see really two weeks until the uh, dispersal of Knesset because of a lack of budget. This is what we're looking at the next two weeks. A lot of comings and goings, a lot of unions, a lot of new alliances, perhaps new parties, new faces, older faces like Tibi Livni. Um, but there's a lot going on. So it's still the jury sounds exactly what this will mean. Uh, polls at this point are relatively meaningless because we don't know all the players, who's going to be with who, et cetera, et cetera. With that, happy to answer any questions. Right, thank you so much. So the first question we have in is, bearing in mind the fact that it is strategy and interest, not identity and culture that bring Israel and the UAE together, do you see a chance for a future rollback of the current normalization or are we witnessing a truly historic event? or something more ordinary? No, I, I, I definitely, again, you know, I'm one person and I just felt on the ground. I think we are seeing something historic, something extraordinary. Um, there is a feeling that there is a shared tradition, a shared identity, a shared culture. You know, we are Middle Easterners. There is something very different again. And just even in my feelings with the highest level officials that I met, I didn't meet the highest level, but I met with a certain uh, level of officials this week and there's a real urgency there they really want to do as much as possible they want to you know uh, I think it was I, I saw so many people on all the different planes at the airport today there was about four planes leaving within an hour of itself and I saw high level journalists there I saw high level Israeli business leaders there I saw uh, cultural leaders there uh, unfortunately the political leadership as I just explained uh, kind of in Israel uh, dealing with other things, but I know that there was a certain amount of ministers who were supposed to go out this week. Um, so I think, yeah, there is something very, very deep here, and I think it's very exciting, and I think it's um, it's it's there to stay, and you can never say never, but again, there's those sort of shared interests, the way uh, some of the people I spoke to talked about their neighbours across the, what locally is called the Arabian Gulf, but obviously in other places it's called the Persian Gulf, uh, that shared uh, 
uh, opponent, uh, enemy, uh, is, is, is the impetus for it. But I think there is developing a real uh, warmth between the two nations, which I think will stand uh, the test of time. But, you know, who, who can say what will be in five, 10 years? Understood. And is there any part of the Abraham Accords that could be backtracked with a Biden presidency? Well, it's, it's signed between the parties. Um, so it's not really something the American administration, it's, it's one that they midwifed, it's one that they pushed, it's one that they, but it's really signed. The Abraham Accords, let's, let's break it down a little bit. The Abraham Accords was just a sort of umbrella agreement that was signed by the Americans, but the normalization agreements uh, were individually or bilaterally signed between Israel and UAE, Israel and uh, Bahrain, and Israel eventually with Sudan, although that one is a little bit more complicated because there are other uh, levels uh, to, uh, to talk about. Uh, but the bilateral relations, also with Bahrain, it seems to be warming up a lot more than was expected. Uh, but with the UAE, I think they're actually trying to add more and more layers all the time. So I can only see that as positive. So what industries or areas of trade are likely to be impacted by the normalization? Well, it seems like uh, many, many different levels. I mean, the most obvious one at the moment is, is tourism. The, the interesting thing is, you know, I, I did a very small amount of tourism while I was out there. And, and I asked some of the people there, uh, you know, what was what's the peak tourism time? And they said, it's around now. Uh, and I said, well, in normal years, you know, without COVID, how would this look? And they said, the place would be teeming. And I think if, again, just from my personal experience, it seemed like the, the biggest tourists were Israelis. And with, as I said, four or five planes coming in every single day, each one with hundreds of Israelis, uh, there's certainly, uh, you know, that, that can certainly be a boom for uh, tourism out there. That may change if UAE does become a red country. Um, but there's all sorts of scientific agreements, cultural agreements, trade agreements. Um, there's, as I said, you know, I, I'm... I, a list for press releases and I don't think there's a day that passes by with some sort of uh, agreement with some sort of ministry in Israel and and one out in the OEE so you know it's the list is 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 becoming more and more endless at this point and there's a lot that everyone is trying to do and people are looking into even more and more uh, issues with the uh, normalization agreements themselves didn't even touch on so I think uh, I think there's it's uh, the the relations are limitless at this point. And do you see Oman or Saudi Arabia moving towards normalization in the near future? Well, there was an interesting outburst uh, by a senior Saudi who actually was one of those who who has led uh, some sort of normalization moves in recent years, uh, Prince uh, Turkey. Uh, I can't remember his full name, uh, a bit of a barrage against Israel, apartheid states, look what they're doing with the Palestinians, which was a bit of a shock. Um, remains to be seen exactly why he said this. Um, but what is clear is Saudi Arabia is not going to the table quite yet, at least not openly. Uh, there was that uh, famous, not so secret meeting between um, the leader of uh, Saudi Arabia and the leader of Israel a couple of weeks back. 
I think those sort of things will carry on happening, especially in the lead up to the uh, President-elect Biden uh, assuming office uh, to try and coordinate positions, to try and coordinate positions on Iran. We saw uh, you know, a senior uh, head, or head of the nuclear weapons program in Iran uh, who was assassinated, you know, is there a coincidence that there was a meeting between Saudi and the Israeli leader secretively one night? That's, that's up to interpretation. But it seems that there's going to be a lot of coordination between the two parties, but I don't see a normalization quite yet. Understood. And how would the foreign policy of Israel be potentially impacted by a new Israeli government? Would they aim to continue Netanyahu's direction? Or is there a possibility to see a major change of direction towards current allies? Um, I don't think so, because there's wall-to-wall support. And, you know, although Premier Netanyahu takes all the credit for what's going on around, it's not necessarily uh, Netanyahu himself. I mean, the normalization agreements, let's just say they were uh, the, the impetus for these, um, uh, for these relations was probably the Obama regime. What happened with the JCPOA, the outreach to Iran, uh, the growth of ISIS at that point, et cetera, et cetera. That's what probably brought the parties together. President Trump then uh, really pushed the two together. Um, and Netanyahu or any other leader would have welcomed them at the same time. Um, in fact, some, there have been moments in the region that some are actually unhappy about the fact that Netanyahu is trying to make them more, the relations more personal to him, they're about him. He's the one who midwifed it. He's the one who did it, whatever. Everyone knows that it wasn't necessary Netanyahu and they're saying that, no, this is a national. These are two countries coming together. This is not, but at the end of the day, a lot of the outreach around the world is done by professionals. It's done by diplomats. Some of it started under Olmert. Some of it started even further back. Some of it was either by other ministers so I think, uh, I don't think uh, relations will change. What there has been in the past, especially during um, when there's been left-wing governments is there's been more focus on the region, on the Palestinians in the past in Syria, obviously the situation in Syria has changed. And there's been very little focus on Africa, Asia, uh, and beyond Latin America. And that certainly changed um, a number of years ago. And there's a lot more tension even for the small, quote, you know, quote unquote, uh, smaller nations. Um, so I think there's an understanding now that Israel has to be far more international. Israel has to welcome relations wherever it may be. And I don't see that changing regardless of who comes into office. Thank you. From a political point of view, not personal, how, exactly how is Gideon Tsar different from Netanyahu? It's a good question. Gideon Saar has been one of those politicians who really uh, goes too far in his views uh, on certain things. You know, he's a bit he's a bit of a Teflon politician where nothing really sticks. Um, his view on the Palestinian issue is he's against a two-state solution, but that's kind of par for the course for most Likud uh, uh, leaders. Although Prime Minister Netanyahu has gone on record saying that he's not against a Palestinian state. Uh, so probably on that issue, Gidon Saar is to, to the right of Netanyahu. Um, on most other issues, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, he was an interior minister. 
he held uh, the education portfolio. He was considered okay on these issues. You know, these, these are not portfolios which really stick out. He wasn't defense minister, which is something, you know, which, which is watched. Uh, finance minister, which is something, you know, obviously that affects every Israeli. Interior ministry is, is you know, one that most Israelis will have some sort of bureaucratic knowledge of, but not much more. Education, it was at a time where there were some moves that were made, but there was no great reforms uh, that followed uh, with other uh, education ministers. So he's not one that really stands out with having very, uh, you know, sort of his, put his mark on. The one thing that I can think of is he's very keen on having a sort of uh, half uh, changing the uh, the electoral system to having 60 um, uh, members of Knesset elected according to the current system, which is a proportional representation, having another 60 according to regional groupings, which would certainly change the map um, to make it more representative, more accountable, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it's something which is probably a non-starter, uh, but it certainly is an interesting idea, one that I would personally support. Um, so we'll wait and see uh, what Gidon Saar does. But what I think it definitely does do is it gives him more of a chance to become a more senior minister because, as we know now, he's a senior player in the, he was a senior player in the Likud, but he wasn't given a ministry. He wasn't even given a head of uh, Knesset committee. He was basically a general uh, member of Knesset. That's because of Netanyahu's penchant for revenge on, on some of those who, who get too close. Um, but becoming a leader of a party which gets in the double figures means that Netanyahu would have to give him a very high portfolio. So uh, on that level, we could certainly see a far more powerful SAR outside than he could rather than inside of it. Thank you. What are your thoughts on the equality law that passed its first reading today? Um, I mean, basically, it's, it's one of a series of laws that Benny Gantz has, has been pushing, Blue and White has been pushing to sort of, it, it serves two, uh, uh, two areas. First of all, it tells Netanyahu that, you know, he's serious about elections and, and this is part of his campaign. And it also goes to his people and says, you know, we weren't just sitting in this government just to look good. We actually are trying to push uh, forward some of the issues which are... negative in the equality law. Some are claiming that it could stand in opposition to uh, the, 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 the Jewish nationality law. But I think when we can find the right uh, you know, tension between the two, that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state, which gives full right to individuals. Uh, it also you know, acts as a Jewish state, which means that Jews can come and make an aliyah and the uh, so the symbols of state are Jewish, uh, like many uh, other countries have Christian or Muslim or Hindu symbols around the world. And I think it's something which has always been there. That tension has always been there in the state. So now, at the moment, for the first time, these are being placed as basic laws, which are Israel's quasi-constitution. But obviously, when you have election season, these kind of issues become much larger, larger than they should do. I think if it was an election season, most people would just look at these and see the controversial and move on. But because it's election season, the right is trying to turn it into an issue where trying to get rid of the Jewish character, 
the left are saying we're going too far to an ethnocentric state and we need full equality. But at the end of the day, if you look at the actual wording of these two laws, there's nothing inherently problematic in either of them. And do you foresee a mandatory pre-arrival COVID-19 vaccine for people willing to visit Israel next year? Sorry, say that again. Unmute. Uh, do you foresee a mandatory pre-arrival COVID-19 vaccine for people willing to travel to Israel next year? I mean, you'll only be let in if you have the vaccine. Yes. Um, there's been no talk of that um, in Israel, at least. Um, I see some airlines like Qantas, uh, possibly others, which say that you can't come on our airline unless you've had the vaccine. I think once it becomes more available, possibly, um, as far as I'm aware, no one's talking about that. I think once you have the vaccine, certainly there'll be a lot less restrictions on you personally, uh, like someone who has had uh, coronavirus like myself, I can travel to a red country and come back without any isolation. They're talking about some sort of green passport for those who had coronavirus, for those who had the uh, vaccine, which would allow you to do certain things perhaps that others wouldn't. So I see that probably there's going to be some level of, uh, in, uh, you know, they're going to try and incentivize taking the vaccine. They won't make it mandatory for citizens. Uh, will they make it mandatory for those visiting? That remains to be seen. There's, to the best of my knowledge, been no talk about it. Perhaps there is talk behind closed doors, but uh, I think it's a little bit too early because the vaccines are only just being rolled out now. And overall, what is the public sentiment about the vaccines? Are people willing to get them? Um, well, the jury's out. I have seen some polls where there's a certain amount of wariness about them, especially being the first. Uh, there was talk of... Uh, 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 Prime Minister Netanyahu did not want to get one, uh, but I think he's changed his mind about that, maybe because there was a backlash and he now claims he will be the first one to get it. Um, but I think that, I think like everywhere, there'll be those who will be adamantly against it, those who will rush to get it, and those who will probably uh, somewhere in the middle will say, I don't want to be the first, but let's just see how that goes. And then maybe a few months down the road, you know, as long as there are no no problems, uh, they'll take it. The vaccines do seem to be tested by the highest levels, uh, cleared by the highest levels. Um, it's just about communication at this point, about communicating to the public that these are safe, that these are, you know, not to say that anyone who takes it will never get coronavirus, will never get ill, because no one can ever promise that in any world. But as long as we can get rid of a lot of the misconceptions and even conspiracies around those, um, Hopefully, they say by spring, there'll be very large percentages in both the US, the UK, and many other places, including Israel, where at least the majority of those who would want to take the test will be able to take the test, uh, the vaccine, I should say. That's good. Thank you so much. Uh, we've come to the close of our webinar. Ashley, thank you again for speaking with us today. Thank you. Uh, for our viewers, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Seth Fransman on the Azerbaijan drones. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a great day.